Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world. So glad you're here. Today's guest is Renee Smith. Renee is the founder of a human workplace, Make Work More Human. Renee champions a more loving, humane, and safe workplace where everyone is welcome to bring their whole selves to work. She does this through primary research, writing, and speaking on making work more human through convening gatherings to practice being human at work, and also through consulting services to leaders, teams, and organizations. Renee also serves as Director of Workplace Transformation at Results Washington, in the office of the governor, where she leads a statewide program of a human workplace, make government more human, to apply human-centered principles and practices to state government workplace cultures. Renee has also become a good friend. And as I've gotten to know her and her work, I realized she is as close as anyone has ever gotten to aligning with my own work and research around love and leadership. So this is going to be a pretty raw conversation. At one point, I turned the microphone over to Renee and let her put on her research hat on and ask me the same questions that she asks of her research participants. So that's where it got interesting because it's about as naked as I'll probably get on my own podcast, but it was all worth it. And by the way, Renee's research is based on interviewing people to gather enough data to truly understand about the cost of fear and the benefits of love in the workplace. There's no research like it that I know of anywhere else. So after you hear the questions that she asked me, if you wanna contribute to be part of this research study yourself on love and fear in the workplace, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do that at the end of the show. So let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Renee Smith. So I'm here with my good friend, Renee Smith. Renee, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Hi, Marcel. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it sure is. It feels great to just kind of hang out and talk to you. You are true. You've become a good friend. We've met uh, for the listeners. I stumbled into one of your blogs in uh, a human workplace, which we'll get into in a second here. And it was... uh, a message about love in the workplace. And it's so aligned with everything I am about, everything that I write about and do that uh, I knew from that moment, I said, this is somebody that I need to stay in touch with. And so here we are. That was probably, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago. Year and a half ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, well, before we do that, I always have this question that I ask of my guests just to kind of get into your heart a little bit and uh, let our listeners know who you are. What uh, makes you smile nowadays when you get up in the morning? Gosh, 
You know, I am just so uh, fortunate. I feel so uh, grateful and lucky and um, to be able to wake up every day knowing that I get to go to work uh, advocating for love in the world, in particular advocating um, for more love and less fear in government as my primary job. And then, um, you know, it's sort of the secondary effort that I have going um, with a human workplace, advocating for that in the world. And um, it's a joy, it's a privilege, like the benefits of that and what comes back to me from that are just so many beautiful connections, relationships. There's so much love that flows back from people um, and from the world because of that, that it definitely puts a smile on my face and makes me grateful every day. And I think that that's exactly what gets me up in the morning and makes me smile too. So we were kindred souls in that sense, Renee. So let's, let's touch on this a human workplace work that has got you really busy. And so touch on that a little bit. I mean, how did you land on a human workplace? Yeah, so a human workplace is uh, an effort, you know, it has a couple different manifestations really um, on the private side of things. It's an effort to, uh, as I said, advocate for more love and less fear and to create a more human-centered workplace everywhere in the world. Really, this is a, it is a global effort um, to advocate for that and to show a path for that and to help people know that our best uh, chance of achieving all the things that we want to collectively and impersonally are by being more human together and not leading from fear and not uh, teeming with fear, but and doing those things with love. Yeah. Um, and then I have the privilege then of um, sort of living that out in um, my day job, if you will, with the state of Washington, with Results Washington as part of the Governor's Results Washington office, um, where I get to run a program that in particular applies these principles and this way of working um, in government. Yeah. So speaking of principles, you know, we have this business uh, methodology that uh, is known as lean. For the people that don't know what is lean, first of all, let's connect the dots here. Your work with a human workplace has its roots in lean. So tell me about that. So our uh, state government has had um, this big effort to adapt lean to government. And, um, you know, over the years, we have um, defined lean in different ways. And I think matured in our understanding of what it is you know, from sort of a set of improvement tools to uh, culture and operational methodology or operating system. Um, The place that I've landed with it and how my work with a human workplace ties to lean is seeing lean as a human-centered philosophy of work. Um, and that that has to underlie everything that we try to do in a lean culture. And if we're trying to make improvements, people have to feel safe and uh, supported and like they belong and they matter in order to engage in the kinds of ways that we want them to in a lean organization. My work has developed with that, uh, that foundation of lean as this human-centered philosophy of work. And then that human-centered philosophy has some things. It has a culture. It has a set of values and principles. It has a whole bunch of methods and tools, and it results in outcomes that uh, deliver value to customers, um, but it all has its source in this human-centered philosophy. My work um, with this started with from that place and really from a conversation that I had with a leader in my former organization um, in Department of Enterprise Services with the CEO, if you will, the director, Chris Liu, um, about a leader's job and in the, in the context of this lean culture. And so it was that conversation that kind of launched me. Yeah, yeah, that's well put. So let's dive into this whole idea of love in the workplace. You know, uh, immediately people might be uh, 
put off by the the idea of love and uh, the ideas of uh, all the things that we're talking about may pop up for people that uh, isn't in the line of thought that we want people to track with here. Okay, so love not not in the romantic sense. It's not love in the even familial sense, but it's love in action, which is the whole reason why you and I do this kind of work is that in the end, love has to show up with some outcomes, some positive outcomes that will benefit businesses, in your case, government and organizations. And you've done research on love. I've done research on love. So I'm curious about yours and if you can unpack some of what you've found so far. Yeah. So I referenced this conversation with Chris Liu and we were having this discussion about about leadership in a lean organization. And I uh, finally asked him point blank. Um, you know, he's a really experienced leader and, um, and just wanted to get his take. And I said, so Chris, what do you think is the most important job of a leader? And he responded to me uh, to eliminate fear from the workplace. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that was a you know, spot on answer. Dr. Deming said something very similar and, and it resonated with me as something that I had seen him try to do and lead into and encourage us as leaders in his executive team to do. And that when we'd done that well, things had gone pretty well. And when we'd not done that so well, things had flagged, you know, kind of failed or flagged. And so that resonated. And it also sort of seemed like half the equation to me. It seemed like if fear were decreasing, then something had to be increasing to take its place. And I came to the conclusion that that thing that is um, increasing in the workplace when fear is decreasing is love. And I happened to like say that out loud in some really public venues <laughs> and and received this really overwhelmingly positive response, like spontaneous applause in, the, in a room of like 300 people and emails and, and people stopping me in the halls later to say, keep saying that we need more of that. Um, and so I decided that I had uh, like touched on something. I discovered something that I needed to understand better. And so that's when I um, did the research that I've done. And so what I did, sort of I put on my, my social scientist hat and thought, okay, my contribution and my way of um, understanding this better is going to be through the avenue of qualitative research um, and through understanding this through people's stories. And so I set about a research project to interview people. Um, about their experiences of fear and love in the workplace. And um, I've done 50 formal research interviews so far, and then um, a whole bunch of informal interaction that just kind of keeps confirming what I'm finding. Mm. But what I came away with um, from those interviews was real clarity about the, the cost of fear and the benefits of love. The methodology was really to ask people to tell me a story about a time when you felt afraid at work and and what happened and what did you know what did you do and what did others do and what was the impact and how did that impact your work and your team and your organization and your home life and your body um, because there are certain physical impacts on people and then um, what did it mean to you and then to tell me a story about a time when they felt loved at work and what was the impact of that and what did it mean to you And I came away just incredibly convicted about what we are missing out on when we're leading and teaming from a space of fear and how much we have to gain and all the potential that there is when we work in a love condition. Yeah. Yeah, And so I'd love to, maybe I can share a little bit about the themes with you that I heard. I I heard um, five kinds of fear stories and then three kinds of love stories. So the first kind of fear story, I was uncomfortable during a performance challenge. 
And so people described being in a, a situation where they needed to perform, needed to give a talk, needed to take on a new job, um, needed to uh, you know, try a new skill, um, take a test, and wondering if they were going to be able to be successful and being fearful about that, kind of coming to their performance edge, working through that, and then having the fear subside. Um, that's not a bad kind of fear. That's actually a good, healthy kind of fear, as long as it's not extreme, right? As long as it's not too far out and unattainable. So we kind of set that aside. And, and then the other four kinds are toxic kinds of fears that were, are more damaging. So the first kind of fear story that people told me was, I didn't know how to be successful after a change. So, you know, changes would happen. And oftentimes um, people were on a team where they knew how to um, get along. They knew how to do their job. They got good performance reviews and then something changed. Um, something changed in the work or in the team. Um, oftentimes it was the leader that changed and people went from knowing how um, to be successful to never knowing how to be successful. Um, and people said things like, I was unable to perform. Um, I was on the outside. We used to be an open and inclusive team, but now there's a new inner circle. I felt like I couldn't trust the new leader, those kinds of things. And in those cases, people eventually quit those jobs and left and went out other places. The second kind of fear was betrayal. I was betrayed. Um, sometimes these were betrayals, personal relational trust, where you know we had a friendship in the workplace and something went sour with that. Oftentimes they were betrayals of positional trust where leaders um, didn't behave with integrity and it really caused deep distress and fear. Um, people said things like, I didn't want to go to work. I was worried I might be asked to do something unethical. Um, I avoided the leader. One person said, I was like a hobbit trying to stay out of the eye of Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people described all this fear, like processing all this fear, taking so much time and, and having anxiety and physical illness and low energy um, and just really sapping the, you know, the life out of the work. The third kind of fear um, was uh, public shaming. So uh, people reported being um, publicly humiliated or shamed, and they would be called out in meetings and yelled at, belittled, questioned, picked apart, backstabbed. Um, they described their ideas and improvements being shot down um, and feeling really guarded and stressed, and that it took much, much longer than necessary to get anything done. It was really interesting and, you know, kind of... Um, it made sense, but it was also horrifying, really, that in these stories, people reported weight gain and eczema and stomach ailments and impact to diabetes and depression. Um, they described taking their fear home with them. Um, and many of these folks reported needing therapy, sometimes for years. Uh, and it was significant that in these stories in particular, people broke down emotionally during the one-on-one -on -one interviews, sometimes about situations that had happened five or ten years previously. That's really devastating, um, those kinds of fears. Um, and then the final kind was people would say, I wasn't supported during a personal crisis um, and being sort of isolated. Um, you know, when life happens, when um, there's death or illness or divorce or hardship of some kind, and individuals are told to leave home at home and work at work and, you know, I just come in and do your job and I don't want to know anything about your personal stuff. That's your, you know, it's your stuff and don't bring it to work. Um, we, I believe, experience that as a deep betrayal of our humanity because it's just not possible to do that. It's not possible to leave ourselves at the door. There's no way that we do. And that when we're asked to, it creates this real sense of, well, of fear and um, anxiety that spills over into our ability to do the work. Uh, one woman said, when we're afraid like this, we can't be our true selves and everything is doused in hesitation and insecurity, and none of that's healthy, and we can't share the wonderful things we're hired to share and do. 
And so the bottom line of all those, you know, stories, what became really clear is that fear is not a good management strategy. You know, no one, I have not talked to anyone who said, I've done the best work of my life when I was afraid. No one has said that to me. People have talked about that first type of fear, about being on their performance edge as being a good thing, like being challenged and a little uncomfortable, but no one performs well and gives their best when they're subject to toxic fear. Hmm. Okay, so the question that I usually reserve for the end, I think it might be um, more opportune to actually place it right here. And that is, why do you think that leaders lead through fear, especially because the there's so much data out there? I mean, you're doing research, I'm doing research, and we can prove without any doubt that cultures of love and care lead to positive outcomes. And yet it's prevalent to see you know, corporate America, government, even nonprofit, whatever industry you're in, to have fear is still prevalent in the workplace. And I'm trying to get to the root of why is it that we lead through fear. I've gotten several different answers by my guests, but I want to hear your perspectives. Sure. So, you know, I mean, I think that there are several um, components to that, but what strikes me most is that we're conditioned to be afraid of love. Um, we are conditioned to be to think that our humanity needs to be put away when we come into um, societal setting, you know, into social settings, um, into the workplace. Um, you know, we learn this in our earliest years at school to be protective of ourselves. We're in environments from the very earliest times where um, sort of domination is the way that leadership happens. Um, and it's not until suddenly, you know, we go through years and years of acculturation that way and suddenly come into the workplace now and are supposed to somehow know that, oh, all of that way of being led and all of those experiences of like holding yourself in check, not being vulnerable in order to survive, protecting yourself against being mocked or teased or bullied or, you know, all of that socialization early on creates deep wounds and disconnection and emotional trauma and our survival through that, you know, is just to like put this uh, human side of us away. Um, and, you know, to think that the, you know, the models that we have for leadership are all about, you know, being directive and sort of dominating, not about being facilitative or collaborative or human with each other. And that's the rare stories that we have when that happens, you know, throughout our early years. And so suddenly that we come to this time in life and now, you know, when we're supposed to make a switch and, you know, we have nothing to, you know, refer to, or there are certainly people that have had great teachers um, at different times or who have had loving family situations or positive coaches, for example. But gosh, our society is full of examples of the opposite of that. Um, and, you know, that we've got to be hard on people, that we've got to scare kids, that we've got to, you know, threaten. So here we are. Here we are in this moment when we are afraid to do the very thing that is going to bring our best um, performance, you know, our best contributions. And frankly, that we need um, this kind of environment, this kind of work environment where um, we feel trust and belonging and care and inclusion so that we can speak up and give and do and be our very best. We desperately need that to solve the problems that we're facing because we've got some major challenges that we're looking at with the climate crisis, um, with the opioid epidemic, um, and, you know, with all kinds of um, social problems that we're facing, diversity and inclusion challenges. You know, we need our best contributions from everyone and to be able to come together and 
So I, I think it's imperative on us to figure this out. That's why I do this work. And I know that's probably why you do this work too. Yeah. Yeah. So we agreed offline that you were going to walk me through some of the method and the question. Yeah. 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 And I'm totally going to put myself on the spot here, but the reason that I want to walk through this with you is that I'd like the listeners to also walk through it in their heads about their own experiences. So let's give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So Marcel, I would love to hear from you. If you could share with us a story about a time when you felt afraid at work. Just share with us a little bit about what happened and what you did and others did and what the impact of that was. And yeah. let's unpack that a little. This is the most horrific example of uh, fear I've ever had in, in all of my um, corporate experience. So I'm going to take you back to 2005. And I was moving up the ranks as an intern in healthcare at a hospital. And, um, and I wasn't getting the support I needed from my, my preceptors, you know, the, the people that are supposed to groom me along because the whole intent uh, in that internship program was to place me in one of the hospitals in a management position in human resources. And it just so happens that uh, there was one bad apple there that uh, didn't see eye to eye with me mm -hmm. and um, started to campaign against me to make my life a living hell. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so people bought onto this idea that I was the bad guy. And all I was asking for was a little bit of handholding just to get me through the bumps as an intern, because I didn't have the capacity for some of these projects or very high level executive level projects, and they wanted to stretch me. And I think that's a good, a good thing. Uh, but what I needed was to be stretched along with some support. So when I didn't get the support, stress started to roll in. And the more stress rolled in, the, the worse things got because my performance went, went down. And so as my performance uh, went down, instead of leadership coming to me and say, hey, how can we help you? They decided to make it worse and uh, kind of just put a vice grip on me and just turn up the heat to say, you need to pull yourself by your bootstraps and or dot, dot, yeah. dot, right? <laughs> and so the stress is so intense that um, one day I stepped out of the shower and fell down and my back went out. So long story short, the doctor asked me, what's your stress like at work on the scale of one to 10? And I said about a 25. And he explained to me that we have um, stress uh, chemicals that like cortisol and adrenaline and things like that, that over time, they, I'm not a doctor, so I, I may not sound like one here, but uh, the point is that uh, the stress got to my back. Yeah. So I was on disability for about a month. Mm -hmm. And when I came back from disability, they threatened me with insubordination because I pulled myself out of the project because I was not able to function normally. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, the most intense fear-based uh, atmosphere that I've ever been, very toxic, that I've ever been involved in, where literally, like you said, it had physical uh, implications where mm -hmm. I could no longer function. And so I was laid out in bed for two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, unable to move. You know, so that's my example. <laughs> Probably could have made that a lot shorter, but... <laughs> that's all right. So I'm sorry you had that experience. That just is... And it's like a classic example of how we respond to threat 
you know, how our performance spirals and the impacts on us physically, mentally, emotionally are, can be devastating. What did having that experience mean to you as a person? Well, the experience made me realize that uh, something's wrong with mm-hmm. the way that people uh, perceive work or perceive how people are managed, perceive how to lead human beings. And I think that's where uh, I started to realize, okay, this can't be the reality for, for all people don't lead this way. And so I started to investigate. But then this leads me to the, the, the love portion of the story because this was a before and after situation. Right after this, uh, this horrible incident, mm-hmm. I was able to complete that in- internship program, by the way. Before you go on, you know, that's that's something um, that's amazing that I do hear from people. One, two things that you just said. One is that we draw meaning, like we learn some things often out of these experiences. It's not that it's all for naught. People are resilient and, and do um, oftentimes become convicted that I'm never going to lead this way and go on to actually be pretty profound leaders themselves. Um, and the other is that then, um, you know, they... Uh, they turn a corner and, and um, find something better. Right. And so, yeah. So tell us about a time when you felt loved at work. Then. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you call it serendipity or it's just a planet's lining up or something of a spiritual nature, but um, that experience. And I was, like I said, I, I wanted to complete it because I wanted that I didn't want to lose myself or yeah. any part of me. I said, no, I'm going to pull through and complete this program and walk away with my dignity that mm-hmm. I was able to do it, um, not out of ego or anything, but because it, it made me a complete human being. I didn't want to walk away from that like, uh, you know, like a wounded soldier with shrapnel uh, flying in my direction, right? So I wanted to walk away there as a whole being. And I was able to do that. The next job comes along and I'm picked up by another hospital that was a complete 180. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the label for the kind of management, mm-hmm. but later on I realized that this, my boss, so I was a director reporting to an executive. He was a servant leader, but I didn't have the label for that yet. And so he spent time with me. He made himself available. He poured into me in my development. He, uh, he communicated openly, right? So uh, expectations were always clear. I always knew what, what the path was and there was a path. So I knew what, what my career path was. And yet he stretched me, but unlike the pre- previous experience, he stretched me and put me in situations that to, to give me that extra exposure, but was always alongside me, mm-hmm. uh, asking me, what do I need to make me better? He removed obstacles from my path. And so I was set up for success from day one. Yeah. And that was the experience where I felt loved for the first time in a work setting. Because I never had a person to set me up this way. And uh, I remember distinctively that he would literally, he'd walk in and sit in my office for an hour and just mentor me. Uh, So he was always making himself available. But the reason is that his mindset was about making the people around him better. You know, that is a growth mindset as a leader. And And when he made people around him better, he himself became better. Because the whole organization then succeeded. Right, right. So you really saw an impact on the work then? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Performance was at an all-time high 
because I knew that um, because of who he was as a human being, as a man of character and integrity, I was willing to walk through walls for that guy. And I was willing to to do that intrinsically uh, from a heart place, not a head place. Right. Yeah. Right. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's fantastic. And, you know, so much of what you just described really aligns then with the the three kinds of love stories that I heard from people in my research. So can I share those with you? Yes. The, um, and listeners can kind of see how the stories maybe that they've been reflecting on align with these. So the, the very first uh, uh, kind of st- love story was my leader cared about me. My leader cared about me as a person. Um, and people said things like, I'm recognized for who I am and um, I feel belonging and respect and appreciation from my leader. People described um, my leader getting to know me and my interests and skills and investing in me and being trusted to innovate. And, and these people all reported feeling loyal and energetic and excited for their jobs. Um, so I heard that in your story for sure. Um, the second kind of love story, um, and I'd be curious if this from your own experience, sometimes it starts with a leader and then rolls into the team. And so the second kind of love story was my team was like a healthy family. Um, so I don't know, if, did you have impacts to the team that you experienced as well? Yes, yes. I, I only have one team member. So the two of okay. us. Okay, good, um, small team. We felt very safe with each other because that, that was set from the top. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, you know, teams that are like healthy families um, work hard and laugh together and help each other. And I heard people talk about rallying in hard times and celebrating and eating together was always a thing Um, and providing support and acceptance and care for each other. And because of all that, they could provide the best service of their lives. Um, They had reputations for high quality work and creative solutions. And then the other thing that I heard was um, people describing being able to go after problem solving in a much more um, sort of um, open way and even having good, healthy disagreements and building on each other's ideas and kind of tugging and pulling on, on an issue to come to a better solution and that they could do that because they knew that they totally belonged and that at the end of all of that, they would still be part of this healthy team that was like a family. You know, so it was a, like they got a much better solutions and to much better um, results because of that. I will say that the metaphor of a family is problematic for some people. And there is a shadow side to that that I, I would caution about. And I've had, you know, dialogue with folks about some people, their metaphor for family is not healthy or not safe. And um, that family doesn't represent that kind of sense of belonging and trust and care. So it is qualified by this uh, notion of a healthy family. Well, if it's um, a, a family in terms of like, no matter what happens, we're going to protect and we're going to let bad behavior, you know, slide because, hey, we're part of this family. That's not OK. And, and um, people weren't describing that. So it's an important distinction to make, though, that there can be a, like this um, shadow side to um, embracing your team as a family. And frankly, some people just aren't comfortable. You know, their families are family and their work's their work. But I think the notion is that we belong and trust and care about each other and um, because of that can perform together better yeah yeah i got one more okay (laughs) gotta give you the the third kind of love uh the third love story you did we don't want to leave people hanging so um the third kind of love was i received support during a personal crisis and uh, being embraced and supported through you know difficulty and people have told me the most incredible stories about this um from really simple things like um, just 
you know, having something traumatic going on, and but then being very personal and private and not wanting a lot of um, attention, but um, members of the team and leader, you know, doing small things so that that person knew that they were cared about and seen and acknowledged and supported. All the way up to um, a woman who was diagnosed with breast cancer, who, you know, had a complete kind of wraparound support from her team. She uh, had had twins previously and had used all her leave, and she was um, a single mom. Um, and so they had donated leave, so she never missed a paycheck in a year. And they, you know, did all kinds of things to just make sure that she knew that she was um, important and that her health came first. And I love what she said, Marcel. She said this. She said, it's hard to take in that much love. She said, they must have valued me and there must have been something that I'd done. But how could anyone be loved so much? My internal tape said I'm not worthy, but this love had a profound impact on me being alive today. I felt deep commitment to get well so that I could come back, not just well for my family, but well for my team. I was eager to be part of the work again and honor their commitment and investment in me. I wanted to make work matter more. Making a difference had a deeper meaning. And when I returned, I walked through halls surrounded by people who had carried me. It was a holy ground feeling. These people carried me and we do important work here. And I want to contribute and really make it count. Um, so it just like her story is so beautiful. Actually, that was like 20 years ago that that happened, and she just retired from state service recently and was a dedicated, loyal public servant. Um, and But it really was grounded in this um, experience that she had at a real crisis point when she wasn't, you know, sort of marginalized or, you know, ignored, but really embraced. When that happens, you know, everybody else watches that, and it's not just for the person that's experiencing it, but everyone else on the team knows that they're safe, too. And it, it, it creates a shift for the entire organization. Mm. I have to acknowledge uh, one person during that horrendous experience at the, at the first <laughs> hospital, toxic environment. You said that uh, one of your insights is that during a personal crisis, there was, there was somebody to just kind of support you yeah. and acknowledge, hey, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I had that one person. He was the chaplain of the hospital, even though he was not uh, part of my cross functionally. I wasn't doing any work with him, but I needed that one source that I could lean on and say, my world is crazy right now mm -hmm. and help me to make sense of it. Yeah. And so shout out to Paul, who's ever listening to this episode. Paul was that one source of uh, that kept me sane. Uh, when everything around me was out of control and he's the one that just listened to me and empathized with me and, uh, and was able to just, uh, be there in the moment for me uh, during my time of crisis, because my personal crisis in that hospital was a work crisis. So it enveloped my whole world. I mm -hmm. couldn't get away from it. Mm -hmm. I, the crisis was at work and then I would take it home with me. <laughs> and so Paul uh, became that uh, that person to just kind of uh, calm things down for me and tell me, hey, you're going to walk through this. We'll do yeah. it. So what it. That's beautiful. And it does speak to how, you know, we can make such a difference for individuals that are around us, right? Every day we are there with each other and, and we can be those people to each other in those hard times as yeah. well as the good times, you know, it's all of it. It's the whole human experience, the celebrating yeah. and the challenges. Wow. Well, I feel like uh, just walk out of a church sermon or something. <laughs> a, little, a little bit lighter, actually. Having done that, walking walk through that little exercise, uh, it 
uh, yeah, it, it, it made me feel a lot better um, because every time I think about it, it does bring me back to that bad place. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, some of the research that I did, I did in group workshops and um, he had people interview each other and then share each other's stories. And then we analyze those stories together. So in the format, people would hear or tell their stories three times in that day. So they would tell them, the person would tell it back, and then that person, their partner would tell it to the group. And it was so cathartic for people um, that I had, um, like, uh, the benefit that people drew from just going through that experience of sort of um, making sense of it, sharing it and making sense of it and putting it to rest that people um, told me later, you know, I can't even remember what my fear story was anymore. It just sort of um, brought it to conclusion in a way that was helpful and healing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly has helped me here in the moment live, but yeah. uh, let's talk about the action part of this. I mean, you have these great insights. You've collected all of these stories. How do you make this practical? I mean, what, how do you take this from the realm of ideas to action? Yeah. So a couple layers to that. There's action in terms of, um, you know, uh, advice to leaders and teams. And then there's action in terms of programmatic action, both for the state of Washington and then um, through a human workplace um, as an effort. In terms of action that leaders and teams can take, like what strikes me, you know, part of the teaching that I do has just sort of basic advice um, that teams can take and basic advice that leaders can take. And it's all about... um, (laughs) you know, just being real with each other, being human together, um, taking time to say hello, um, to invest in building relationships, um, to connect, to work through challenges. You know, for leaders, it's like being respectful and not not adopting that sort of um, bullying kind of or um, fear-based or threat-based kind of leadership, but to adopt more of a facilitative or servant leadership or, um, or you know, a love-based leadership approach a more human-centered approach that welcomes whole people. Um, and But what's, what's striking about all of the, like, the micro-behaviors that are described by people is that it's really simple and it doesn't cost a darn thing, you know? It doesn't cost any more to show up and to be empathetic and compassionate and kind or to be appreciative or to be grateful um, or inclusive. Like none of that costs anything. And that's like the good news for any organization, whether it's government or a business enterprise, that we can all choose each day, each moment to show up differently. One of the things in the training that I do, um, sort of after presenting some of these foundational, just basic principles of, you know, how to just remind people that there are these just basic behaviors is to then encourage people to see that um, each day we've got a challenge that we face, maybe about multiple challenges, but, you know, pick one, right? Maybe um, I've got a performance issue on my team. Maybe we've got some budget um, budget issues or revenue issues. Um, perhaps we've got, we're down some staff, and so we've got pressure of um, the workload. You know, there can be all kinds of customer complaints, whatever. There can be all kinds of challenges that we face. Maybe we have a team member that made a big mistake. Um, so in any of those Uh, challenges, we have a decision to make about how we're going to either lead into those challenges. What is our leadership going to be like if we're a leader or as a team member, how are we going to act in the face of those challenges? And um, what I encourage people to do is to to be clear with yourself. Let's say the team member has made a real public mistake or a, a big mistake that needs correcting or that, you know, just is this mistake. 
Um, what What's a fearful response that a leader can have to that mistake? What does it look like to lead with fear when a team member has blown it? And, you know, I mean, what, what would you say to that, Marcel? I would say blame and reprimand. Right, right, exactly. Reaction, things like that. Things that yeah. are, you know, the, the typical top-down kind of, uh, you know, controlling responses. Right, exactly. And so I would encourage a leader facing a challenge like that to be clear about that, like bullet pointed out, write the list of here is the fearful response to that situation. And then now pause and consider what would it look like to lead with love in that situation and and make that list. Um, And so, you know, I've got an example um, of a leader in the state of Washington that I've worked with and and who's faced a very similar situation. And, you know, his response to that situation was to come alongside that leader, to provide her coaching and support, to check in on her as she went through the process of correcting, uh, you know, the steps that needed and taking steps to correct the situation um, and to tell her we're family and you're not alone. She moved through that and, and they processed that, you know, and overcame that. And she's still in leadership there and doing well. And so to to be clear, though, if we intend to be a leader who is leading from a space of love and care for human beings and from a human-centered work um, space, then um, what's fear look like? What does love look like? And now I've got a choice to make, right? I can put one of those in action and be very careful not to put the other in action, like putting aside the fear-based behaviors and holding myself accountable, uh, responsible for those love-based behaviors. Um, but there's no, you know, there's no like, here's the five things to do every day to be a loving leader. Like there isn't that because every challenge is unique. But I think that the leadership behavior that's important is the reflection and the choice to make about how we show up. Yeah. Renee, so for people that are skeptical that mm-hmm. may think that love is still too soft. There is no place for love in business or the workplace. You have this accountability model. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a question that's come up uh, and it's a reasonable question, right? And it's it, um, this idea of like, like, won't love be too soft or what about, you know, what about accountability and aren't people just going to get away with things in this kind of environment? And um, what I would offer is that I don't think it's our love that is too soft or that is a determining factor. And so if you think about um, an x-axis with fear on one end and love on the other end, right, Um, whether we are in a fear-based environment or a love-based environment, um, underneath all of that is permissiveness, neglect, lenience. Whether it's fearful or loving or not, those things can happen. Um, and And the determinant on whether they do or not is actually our commitment. So in a low commitment environment with whether it's fearful or loving, you've got permissiveness, lenience, neglect. But when you raise the commitment um, of leaders to act and when you raise commitment by really understanding how behaviors are impacting people, culture, results, um, the organization, customers, when you raise commitment by understanding those um, impacts, then you have a different kind of uh, set of options. So, um, and that would be our our y-axis, if you will. So low commitment, high commitment. So in a fearful, high commitment environment, I think you have accountability, which is all about um, blame and um, compliance right? So we feel really attached to this idea of accountability, like we're supposed to be accountable, we want to be accountable, we want others to be accountable, and and I get that. Um, But the thing about the word accountability, that term, is that it never refers to anything positive. 
it's always sort of a finger wagging threat based construct, right? So we talk about, I'm going to hold you accountable, you know, you better not. And, um, and I've had been in so many organizations where people will describe like, we were really motivated, and then leadership decided to have this accountability initiative. And it's sort of like, you know, and all this, all the wind goes out of everyone's sails, because that language, most for the most part, for most people communicates, you know, we really don't trust you, right? And if you blow it, you know, you're going to be in trouble. So fear and high commitment looks like um, compliance-based accountability. And really, it's kind of the least common denominator. But in a loving and um, high commitment environment, you have responsibility, which is all about belonging and trust. Mm -hmm. And the language of responsibility invites both responsibility for any mistakes that might happen, or, you know, blowing it. <laughs> and it invites responsibility for the brilliant thing that happened, for high performance, for success. It invites and welcomes the idea that we want to do and be and contribute our best, and we're going to be mutually responsible to each other. And it just sets things in a more positive direction. And so, you know, the saying that um, words make worlds, what I would offer is that um, language about responsibility is much more helpful and um, points us in the direction that we want to go and um, toward better outcomes and engagement than language of accountability. But at the end of the day, out of all of that, it's not love that's the term determining factor on whether or not um, we have re responsibility or accountability. It's about commitment. Mm. Mm. I have a post on that um, on the blog um, way back in the, you'd have to dig in there, but maybe we can link it or something if you want. But yes. I do have a post on that. Yeah, yeah. Let's bring this full circle as we kind of wind down here. And, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but um, <laughs> I want to know what's your big vision for all of this? Mm. So, you know, my vision is that we change um, our social norms globally around work. That's the, uh, the movement that I am a part of is, is that we fundamentally change how we work across the world. And, you know, I started this obviously in the state of Washington, um, in, you know, in the U.S. I've spoken a lot across Canada and now have had opportunities to speak to people really literally um, all over the world. And I hear um, from people that it is universally an issue for people. This, is, this isn't just um, kind of a U.S. problem and certainly not just a Washington state problem um, and, and, or opportunity, but that um, people globally are all experiencing um, this, you know, fear-based workplaces um, as limiting uh, and um, holding back um, what is possible and the contributions and, um, and performance that's possible. And that fundamentally the joy and happiness and satisfaction um, just working with others and um, making contributions to the world. So I look to and I'm aiming to help with that movement and to help shift the way that we think about work from fear-based workplaces to love-based human-centered workplaces. Um, that means that um, you know, a human workplace as an institute is um, what I'm working on on the private side, and then the work, um, my work with the state of Washington and government on um, the public side um, is sort of the manifestation of that work. Um, but we're about offering tools and support and resources through a human workplace um, and a conversation uh, to help advance this. And, uh, you know, one of the 
Um, the biggest interventions that's come out of this, in addition to the, like the writing and speaking and research and, and all of that and different kinds of workshops, um, it, are these gatherings, um, a human workplace gathering. So um, they're very particularly called gatherings um, because they're, I, I like to say that they're not meetings, but you're going to meet somebody, you're going to meet some people. Uh, they're not workshops, but you'll work on some things and they're not trainings, but you will learn some things. So it's coming together for two hours. Um, we have a human workplace Olympia, human workplace Seattle, and there's a bunch more that are starting up um, in other places, um, both inside organizations and then um, in other geographic locations around the world. Um, and in this two hour period, there um, is a deep connection. Um, so people connecting person to person in ways that are meaningful. There's always a topic um, and, and the um, bulk of the time with that topic is spent um, on reflection, on dialogue, um, on activities, on application, with only a little bit of talking, you know, from the front of the room or teaching, if you will. Um, we try to really limit that because the value um, that people find in these um, in these gatherings is in the, you know, coming together and engaging around the topic um, and their own uh, generative conversations. And then uh, there's the application to the work. We've got to bring it on home uh, around the work. It's got to it's got to mean something when we go back to the office. And so there's always making it practical. And then there's a meaningful close um, to sort of honor the time that we've spent. And really, these gatherings are about practicing being human in a professional setting. And what people are telling us is that these are the best two hours of their month, that they have never experienced anything like this, and they get energized, and they get inspired, and they are going back to their workplaces and, um, you know, sort of organically creating um, human workplace um, instances or uh, gatherings themselves, or, you know, they're, they're infusing their own workplaces with the same kind of dialogue and um, conversation um, that's helping to shift the culture and the conversation and the uh, mental model about what it means to be a professional at work. And so I'm really excited about those being propagated. The other piece that I'm like longer term, I see the potential and am and, and looking for and looking to advance more research. And I would love to have crowdsourced research around um, fear and love at work stories. Um, so like, you know, we just had this conversation today and your two stories are powerful stories. And literally, I think everyone has stories um, that help us to understand better um, the impacts of fear and the impacts of love. And um, I am looking to create a platform where that kind of engagement can happen about just sharing and tapping into our stories to better understand. What I see with people when we share our stories like this and when people hear each other's stories is that it's really um, supportive and confirming that like, oh, I'm not alone. It's not just me. And yeah, yeah, we like, I don't want to be afraid at work. Yes, I do my best work when I feel loved and cared for and, you know, respect, you know, inclusion, empathy, kindness, when I have those kinds of experiences, which I would say are all subsidiaries of love. Um, when we have those experiences, then I do better. And that's what I want as well. And I want to create that kind of workplace. And so I think that's that like the third component of what I see um, and aim to be building in this human workplace. Um, um, Institute is a way to have affiliation around that. And so there might be, um, I think what we're looking at is creating something that people can sort of take the pledge or that we, uh, yes, I'm pursuing this too. And 
um, some sort of branding or insignia that people can adopt to signify to each other, to people who want to, you know, might be applying for jobs or looking to come to work, that this is the kind of workplace that we are trying to be and uh, we want to go after them too. So all of that is in the works and, uh, and probably more, but those are the things that really are surfacing as I think crucial for this time and like the unique contribution that a human workplace can make to this glo- growing global movement. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited that uh, all of these things are, are in the works, Renee, and you are a powerhouse in this movement. I just wanted to acknowledge you and I'm just blessed to, to know you. And I'm glad that we're, uh, uh, we're in this together, uh, fighting these, um, you know, toxic uh, command and control old styles of, of management that uh, are still prevalent in the, in, in the workforce. I want to, as I always do, give you the mic as we close and have you end this interview your way, really, with your own closing statement, but maybe something that's tugging at your heart. What would you like our listeners to walk away with that mm. will make a difference in their lives? Yeah, you know, the thing that I'm really pondering right now, and I, I'm, I know that we will hold a, a human workplace gathering based on this, um, is about emotions. It's about the role of emotions in um, our lives and and the um, the importance of them for us as human beings. Um, I'm disturbed, frankly, um, by the the norm that is out there that says that emotions are to be um, both understood, like we should be emotionally aware, but only for the purpose of suppressing them and like shoving them aside and controlling and containing them. and, and that there isn't enough attention given to this idea that emotions are part of our makeup as human beings. They're a gift to us. They are part of our um, our insight um, and sort of a, they can be a warning system. They can be um, a, a part of what gives us wisdom into what's happening um, both in us and in our environment um, and that we should see them as a resource, emotions as a resource um, to be leveraged instead of just to be controlled and repressed. Um, and I think that there's just a, a, a load, that's probably a whole other podcast maybe that you know, we can explore some other time, but um, I would just encourage that um, we are emotional beings and rather than, um, rather than try to uh, put our emotions away, we should be trying to understand them to leverage them so that we can be wise leaders, wise team members, um, sensitive, insightful, responsive, um, and that that is a, a source of benefit for us. So, Renee, if people want to get a hold of you and connect with you, where will they go? Yeah, you can uh, reach me at Renee at MakeWorkMoreHuman.com. And uh, that's my kind of the private side of the work that I do. And um, I'm happy to be in dialogue with folks there. And, you know, there's a, the re, that, that website has resources available to anyone. There's a mailing list that's growing. I send out um, information and resources and share. And I'm yeah, happy to connect with people that way. And your website for a human workplace? Is makeworkmorehuman.com. Makeworkmorehuman.com. There you have it. Well, Nice to chat with you again. Always good to get together and wish you all the best in uh, everything you're doing. And I'm sure that we'll be doing this again soon. Yeah. Thank you, Marcel. Much love to you. Wow. Let me tell you, after I answered those questions on love and fear, I told Renee offline that I felt like I had an out of body experience. It, It felt cathartic. 
like an emotional release. And, you know, that event happened nearly 15 years ago, and I'm still healing from it. But answering the questions helped in my own recovery process because we have all been impacted by fear at some level or another, and most of us are still recovering. So Renee and I decided to partner together on this research around the cost of fear and the benefits of love in the workplace. We want to interview as many people as possible to gather enough evidence in hopes of using our findings to change the workplace for the better. If you want to participate in this study, you can log in your own stories of fear and love and answer the same questions that Renee asked me. Go to Renee's website at makeworkmorehuman.com. Join me next week when I hang out with Kristen Hadid, the founder and CEO of Student Made and author of Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing Almost Everything Wrong. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of this show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to moderate a discussion on your behalf. Reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.